It's good to see all the elect in God's house today. Uh, let's, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, we're grateful that in your kindness and in your mercy you've brought us together on this Lord's Day. And, and we're grateful already for what we have um, experienced and held together in worship. Thank you for the preaching of your word and for prayer. And I pray that now, in this moment, as we think about St. Augustine, that you will bless us and give us strength and understanding. And may um, your saint, who is long dead, may he continue to speak even in this current moment. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I think it's probably... Well, thanks for coming. Um, I think it's probably appropriate in the year of the Reformation... Uh, to think about Augustine. This is a one-off class. Someone was asking me this morning, this is a one-off. This, this is one-off, um, and I'm supposed to start a, another little series next week um, where we will think about reading the Bible with Karl Barth for a couple of weeks together. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I think in the year of the Reformation, it's, it's pretty strategic for us to think about Augustine and the long-term impact Augustine, 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 Tomato, tomato, however you want to say that. Um, but how St. Augustine um, uh, continues to help us think about Scripture and theology because we know that the Protestant reformers, the magisterial reformers, think Luther, um, think Calvin, think um, and well, Calvin's kind of second generation, but I put him up there. Calvin, Zwingli, um, these figures from the Reformation, we all know that they were arguing for the primacy of the Bible in making theological claims in the life of the church. You know, the Bible had a primary authoritative role. We're going to talk about that a little bit this, more this morning. The Bible had a primary role, and we know that that was part of the great debate of the time. Um, but I, what I think often is forgotten, or maybe at least muddled in that historical retelling, is the importance for someone like Luther or Calvin um, to have the patristic or early church voices on their side as well. In other words, it it mattered to Augustine, I mean, it mattered to Luther and it mattered to Calvin to have St. Augustine on their side. That was very important. Um, So St. Augustine, and all of you know this um, from all the chatter we do around here about Martin Luther, when Luther was um, uh, made his famous commitment to become a monk, he did so by becoming an Augustinian monk. So the influence of St. Augustine and Augustine's theology on, August, on, on Luther came out sort of right out of the gate. So, so why Augustine? And, and, and let, let me just give you a two-minute two um, overview of St. Augustine's life. <laughs> so here, here we go. Um, so St. Augustine was born in around the 350s. His mother was a, was a believing woman by the name of Monica. If you have not read St. Augustine's Confessions, I, it, it, it's compelling reading, not a bad beach read if you're looking for something. Um, and, and if you stop after Book 9 and don't read Book 10, you will be fine. Um, uh, but uh, St. Augustine's Confessions tells about the centrality that Monica, St. Augustine's mother, played in his life. If you go to Beast and Divinity School, and you walk in there and you see the dome, um, you've all seen the dome in Beeson before if you visited. We have 16 figures up in that dome who sort of witnessed down on us from the history of the church. Uh, and I think it begins with Perpetua. Then we have Athanasius. And next to Athanasius is Augustine. 
And if you look closely at the icon of Augustine in our dome, you'll see a faint portrait of Monica, his mother, in the background. You can't, the, the, the significance of Monica's influence on Augustine's life cannot be downplayed. And of course, she was praying from his youth that he would be converted to Christianity, but, you know, Augustine uh, took the long path to get there. It's kind of, in, you know, some hope for us parents, you know, took the long path, um, took, a, took a concubine, um, had a living lover for a very long time. Um, you know, the famous line, Lord, give me chastity, just not today. You know, uh, it's very kind of Augustinian at the time. Even, even, had a, even had a child with this woman. I mean, so, it, you know, this is the great father of the church um, who had a pretty interesting lifestyle. And Augustine prayed for him through all of I mean, Monica prayed for him through all of this. Um, Augustine eventually took a kind of philosophical, he's a very intellectual young man, bright young man, and he was following after the truth. Took him through a time of being a Manich- with the Manichaeans, um, who were basically a kind of a Gnostic uh, religious view. He went through them for a little bit, but then eventually he found himself in Milan, where bishop, the bishop there was Ambrose. And if you know something about the time of the Greco-Roman world, there was a fascination with the ability to be able to speak um, powerfully and persuasively. Now that uh, that that was the I guess if we use sort of Christian language, that was the charism that was of great appeal in, in, in the Greco-Roman world was the ability to be a good orator. And apparently Ambrose was among the best. So Augustine would go to church on Sundays to hear the bishop speak. Not necessarily because he found Christianity compelling, but because he wanted to hear this incredible order uh, turn a phrase. Well, as you know, the word of God's not neutral. Um, and in time, it begins to soften Augustine's heart Till the famed moment of his conversion. And this is, this is a story that probably most of you have heard. It's a good one. Um, Augustine uh, thinks that he hears children in the next yard playing a game. And the game is uh, because they're yelling out, take and read. And he then thinks, I don't know of any children's game that they yell to one another, take and read. Um, my kids certainly don't play any game that, that includes reading. That's a forced activity. Um, and so he says, this must be a word from the Lord. And Augustine goes and he um, says, I will turn to the scripture. So he opens up the Bible. He does the kind of thing that we tell our students never do, but he does it. He opens his Bible. He puts his finger at the first spot that he sees. And it's the end of Romans 13 where Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Augustine says, and the light shined on my eyes and my heart. He was converted. Um, so that's so, uh, the source of Augustine's conversion. And in time, this unusually capacious man with a great gift for insight and the reading of the scriptures becomes one of the chief voices from the early church whose theological writings are voluminous. Um, and he continues to be read and studied for good reason, and his impact um, is felt to this day. Um, he ended his life as the Bishop of Hippo, which was in northern Africa, toward the end of the, actually Christianity in the northern region of Africa. So it's, he's, a, he's a very important figure. Now, I, I didn't want to do all that, but, but there it was. Um, but St. Augustine sort of breathed the air of the early church. And as one who breathed the air of the early church, he was one who was given to the reading of the Bible. And this, this is the point that I want to sort of really lean into as an entry to our um, advice from St. Augustine as this dead man continues to speak today. And why? 
We tend to think of doing theology or thinking Christianly as something that starts with the Bible and then the Bible propels you to other thoughts. In other words, um, if you read a lot of Christian theology today, and, and I'm for this, but if you read it, the Bible is there as kind of support material for what the theologian is saying. And I, I, by the way, I'm not downplaying the, the, the good of that and the significance of that, because what you're seeing is a distillation of what, of what the theologian thinks that the Bible is saying about topic X, Y, or Z. Okay, so it's, it's okay. But that's not the way that St. Augustine and the sort of patristic world that he inhabits would think about theology. Theology is not reading the Bible to, to then go and do something else. Theology was the close reading of the Bible itself. In other words, we do theology by reading the scriptures closely and then speaking about them on that very surface level of Bible reading. Um, that's why, for example, if you want to know St. Augustine's theology, you don't just go and read his very dense work on the Trinity. You don't just go read the City of God. You go and you read his five volumes on the Psalms. Think about that. Five volumes on the Psalms. Um, St. Augustine was a long-term preacher and reader of the Scriptures, and St. Augustine would tell you that if you want to think thoughts after God and to know God, that's done through the close reading of the Bible. Why do I think this is important? I think this is, and maybe this is hyperbolic and overstatement, but I've had some conversations over the summer that have propelled me to think about this again. Um, I'm not sure there is a more pressing matter on the life of the Western church today, that's us, okay, than the continued authority and role of the scriptures in deciphering and shaping what it means to think, be, and pray as a Christian. I'm going to say that again. I'm not sure there's a more pressing issue today than the roles that the scriptures play as the authoritative voice of God in shaping Christian life, thought, and practice. So I'm not sure. Um, why? Well, because the Bible is difficult. And this is the part that I want to get to with, with Augustine here. All right? The Bible is, is difficult. So here we're going to get in some of these patristic insights. Now, if you read some of the secondary literature, you'll find this language used. The critical tradition, say after Calvin, and the pre-critical tradition, say someone like St. Augustine or Aquinas. And what and I don't like those terms because what it tends to suggest is that Western thought had to wait for 1,600 years before people found out that the Bible was a challenge or difficult. And as we have to wait till Spinoza shows up in the Netherlands to say, hey, you know what? Um, there's two different accounts of this. Or, hey, you know what? Did Jesus cleanse the temple at the beginning of his ministry in John's gospel or at the end of his ministry, the synoptic gospels, or did he do it twice? Um, it, it, we tend to think that it took the modern rational mind to see that the Bible had challenges in it. And this is one of the things that I think we live with today. The residue of that today is that people will find certain aspects of the Bible difficult and then because they find certain aspects of the Bible difficult, they will dismiss it in its totality. I want to tell you this morning, St. Augustine, 
Luther, Calvin, Aquinas, they all knew that the Bible was difficult. And that there were passages of the Bible that were dark alleys, like, and kudos to Deborah, like the text we heard this morning, right? Abraham, go give me your son. Um, Exodus chapter 4, there's the God, Adonai, Yahweh, trying to kill Moses. And then his wife, Zipporah, um, I, she must have been carrying a kind of traveling circumcision kit, <laughs> circumcises Gershom, rubs the blood onto Moses in these three verses, and then, most, and then God's anger is assuaged. Next verse, and then Moses met Aaron and they went on their way. That, that is a weird text of the Bible. Um, and, and the list could go on and on. There are challenges to the Bible. But here's principle number one coming from Augustine. And by the way, I'm leaning on his book, Teaching Christianity. I'm going to quote some of it this morning. Here's principle number one from St. Augustine um, on reading the Bible. Okay, number one. We don't measure the clear parts of the Bible by the difficult parts. But we measure the difficult parts by the clear parts. Let me read to you something that he says here. Have I lost you all this morning? Well, anyway, here you are. This is what he says. In such a way that instances from the plainer passages are to be used to cast light on the more obscure utterances. Right? The plain passages are meant to cast light on the more obscure parts. Now, why do I say this? I say this because... Augustine, in another place in the same book, says the Bible is difficult enough to keep professional Bible people in a job for their whole lives. Um, if I can put that in our room this morning, the Bible is difficult enough of a challenge to give you know a sidewalk Joe like me a job. Okay, um, I just finished four weeks of summer Hebrew with students. I mean, I've had students in my office with tears this, this June. It, I mean, it's hard work learning that dead language. And, there's, and, and Augustine says, if you can do it, if you can get in there and learn the, the, the languages, get in there and do it, if you can. Um, there are difficult parts of the Bible that remain a challenge and provide professional Bible people, local clergy people, and intelligent lay people enough fodder for the rest of their lives to stay to be students of the Word to the day you exhale your last breath, right? And then when you're gone, guess what? Another generation of Christians are going to come up and struggle along with the same thing till they exhale their last breaths. Now, I don't know your views on this. is one thing I do love about the thought about heaven. Um, but when we... And this, is, this shows that I'm, I am very Western in my Christianity. I'm very Protestant, too. Uh, when, when we die, I don't believe we become sort of semi-divine. I think we become fully human, which is itself an enormous thing, right? We become fully human. But it doesn't mean we become omniscient, all-knowing, or all-powerful. Those, those attributes that are unique to divinity, I don't think we will have those attributes in heaven. I hope that doesn't disappoint any of you, but you know, I don't think it's going to happen. But what that means, then, is as fully human, perfected humanity we are still going to be in a process of learning for the entirety of our eternal existence. We get to go to school together. Can't wait. 
Bible study with Jesus together. We get to still learn. So the learning is open before us. God, we will continue to be learning about God 10,000 years from now. This is an incredible thing. And we'll be doing it together without any relational dispute and freedom um, and, uh, and, and, and the enjoyment of no pressure and power of sin. It, it's going to be wonderful. Um, and Jesus models for us in the Bible that he does Bible studies. He, Jesus likes to do Bible studies. And we're going to get to do it with him for eternity. It'll be, it'll be wonderful. Um, so all to say, even in eternity, we won't necessarily understand everything in its fullness. We're going to continue to learn and to be taught. But here's the flip side of what Augustine says. Augustine says that there are difficult enough parts in the Bible to keep honest and searching Christians at work till the day that they die. But the Bible is also clear enough. This is a very important Reformation doctrine as well that the Reformers are, are taking straight out of the Augustine playbook. But the Bible is clear enough for children to understand who God is, what He wants from them, and what He's done for them in Jesus Christ. Children can get it. Um, that's, that's wonderful news. That, that's the doctrine within the Reformation world of the perspicuity of the Bible. There's an irony here, by the way, that you would use a very obscure term like perspicuity to talk about the clarity of the Bible. Um, but there's, it, it, that's, a, that's a word joke. Um, uh, uh, but anyway, so the, the, the Bible is clear. When the Reformers say that the Bible is clear, they don't mean that it's equally clear in all of its parts. But it's clear enough to do its saving work. That's crucial. The Bible is clear enough to do its saving work. And this is what I think Augustine's takeaway from the standpoint of what is the virtue of the reader that's expected. The virtue of the reader that the Bible anticipates is, is humility. It's humility. We're humble before the Scriptures. And we recognize that there are aspects of the Bible that are beyond our pay grade. They are a challenge to us. They remain a challenge. But we also remain in a posture of humility because the Bible, in its basic message and form, namely the gospel, is clear enough for children to read it and to understand it. That's, that's the profundity of the Bible. It's the profundity of the Bible. All right, so, um, it's difficult and it's clear. Um, that's, oh, and th- this was another takeaway point. I had this written down. I think this has a lot to say for how you and I think about reacting and speaking truthfully and lovingly to those within the household of faith. I'm talking about those who identify themselves as Christians who reject the Bible's authority because of its difficulty. And I, you, you hear this, I think, more and more, right? Um, well, uh, think about some of the ethical issues that are facing the life of the church. Well, you know, the Bible also says don't eat shrimp. You can you hear these things. This is, a regular, this, this is CNN ethics theology conversations. The Bible also says don't round the corner of your beards. You know, the, the Bible says no more mullet for you. You like smoke mullet? Bad news for you. And then the Bible also says this about sexuality and da-da-da-da-da. So it's all a quagmire. We're sort of kept in this interpretive paralysis. And there's no real way for us to move forward, right? 
And this is where Augustine, and by the way, the whole stream of the Catholic Christian tradition stands up and says, hold on now, you can't dismiss the Bible and its authoritative claims, its norming claims, because of those difficult parts. The clear parts you don't get to just toss because of the difficult parts. And the Bible, by the way, has operated quite handsomely and freely in the life of the church as an authority, despite the fact that there are still interpretive challenges related to issue X, Y, or Z. Um, That's the hard and good work of thinking the Bible's thoughts after it, diving into it to let its way of construing the matter shape us. That leads me to two more issues from Augustine. All right, two more. Are we we still still here? All right, two more. Two more. Number one, Augustine inhabits a very patristic instinct that was also a Reformation instinct to both, now I'm going to use technical terms and then we'll explain, to both sola scriptura and toda scriptura. Hold those. Sola scriptura and toda scriptura. Let me read you a quote from Augustine on the scriptures alone as authoritative. This is what he says. Instead, we should rather think and believe that what is written there is better and truer even if its meaning is hidden. That is truer and better than any good ideas we can think up for ourselves. That is about as good a statement on the authority of the scriptures as I think you find in Augustine. We think and believe and confess that even where the Bible's difficult, that what it says in its total witness is truer and better than the best thoughts that we can think of ourselves. Now, let's stop, because that's easy, that's, that's, that makes a great bumper sticker. All right? But think about the implications of what Augustine is saying there. Left to our own rational devices, what we would come to logically on our own efforts pale in comparison to what the scriptures have to say in their total authoritative voice. It's truer and it's better. Um, I have to think about that. I have to wrestle with that. I mean, we're talking about an ancient book here. We're talking about a book that breathes the world to the ancient Near East in the first century Greco-Roman world. This is an ancient document. It's old. And yet Augustine is saying that what we find there hidden in its pages, even in its obscure parts, is better than the best things that we can say ourselves. That is about as robust a claim on the authority of Scripture as you find. And by the way, Augustine, if he said that to Athanasius, if he said it to Hilary of Poitiers, if he said it to Aquinas, if he said it to Anselm, Luther, Calvin, I mean, all the great chiefs in the history of the church, from whatever denominational stripe you want to find, if he were to say that phrase to any of them, everyone within the Catholic tradition would say, of course that's true, that's right. Matter of fact, that's at the core of our confession of what it means to be a Christian. So, yes, it's, it's a sola scriptura, but it's also um, toda scriptura, which means all of it. This is what he says here uh, at the end of book two. And when you have found there everything of use that you can learn elsewhere, 
You will also find there in much greater abundance things that you cannot find anywhere else at all. Things that can only be learned in the marvelous heights and equally marvelous lowliness and humility of those scriptures. We find them in the lowliness and the humility of the scriptures. So Augustine would say here, we're committed to the authority of scripture and we're also committed to the scripture in its entire witness. And how do we read the scripture in its entire witness? In light of God's triune salvation of humanity. And that's crucial. Um, If you remember, Irenaeus in the second century talks about um, ordering a mosaic. Uh, Let's say you lived in Rome and you wanted to put a mosaic in your house and you order it from the great mosaic maker, the artisan from Athens, and he would send you the mosaic in the mail through ship, and, and then now you have to put it together. And if he doesn't send you a guidebook to put it together, you may have ordered a king but you end up putting together a picture of a fox, right? Um, and this is what Augustine in the Great Tradition would say is central to our reading of the Bible. We read the Bible in its entirety in light of what God has done for us in His Son by the revelation of His Spirit, His salvation. I thought about this with the 5 o'clock service a few Sunday nights ago when we were celebrated <laughs> Trinity Sunday. You know, there have been a lot of attempts within this last century to make the Trinity practical and relevant. You know, like the the Trinity is is practical and relevant because it tells us how we relate to one another as humans. Um, It tells us what it means to commune and love, um, various aspects of what's called social Trinitarianism. And maybe all that stuff is helpful. But can I tell you what I think is eminently practical about the Trinity? Here's the practicality. The Trinity lets us know who God is and how you got saved. And that's really practical. right? It lets you know who your God is. The God we just finished praying to. The, the, the Trinity lets you know who that is. And the Trinity also lets you know that that God has constituted his very being, his communal being, his perfect self-sustaining being as a God to redeem humanity, to move outside of himself for, for others. All right. Now, a few more things. I've got, I've got five minutes. Okay, here we go. Seatbelts on. This is the kind of reader that Augustine says the Bible anticipates. So I don't know if you think about that or not, but the Bible anticipates a certain kind of reader. Well, what is the reader that the Bible thinks is going to pick it up and read it? Well, number one, the reader of the Bible is one who is marked by the fear of the Lord. Now, Augustine calls these the stages of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? This is how Augustine defines it. Wishing to know his will. The one who fears the Lord is the one who enters into the Bible yearning to know What is the will of God? What is it that God wants from us? Fear. Now, I'm not sure what you think when you hear the term fear of the Lord. But it's an interesting phenomenon in the Old Testament that fear and love are not viewed as mutually incompatible. Um, Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, you will find the phrase, fear the Lord and love the Lord, think Deuteronomy 10, often within the same contextual frame. Fear him and love him. Um, Why would we be able to fear and love at the same time? 
because we recognize both, and I'm stealing from Deborah's terminology this morning, we recognize the reality of both his mercy and his severity. Um, God is not to be trifled with. Um, Being in a position to defend God is a very vulnerable place to be because God doesn't need defense. He is the great and terrible mystery. He's the other. He's, He's not like anything that we are. And whenever we make any attempt to domesticate God or make God fit within the confines and rubrics of our own understanding of what God must be like, we've made a step in the direction of idolatry. That's the way the Old Testament would frame it. Whenever you want to lessen God or or bring down his overwhelming character, the fact that when anyone has an encounter with God, they are overwhelmed by his presence, that elicits bona fide fear. Yes, it's reverence, yes, it's all, but it's also bona fide fear. He is not to be trifled with. You remember the scene in Exodus where God called all of the people up to Mount Sinai? Hey, let's, all of you come on up here. And they come out of their tents. And what do they see going on on the top of Mount Horeb? Lightning, smoke, thunder. And what do they say to Moses? How about you go up there for us? And uh, we'll stay right down here, right? Um, the mystery and the power of God elicits bona fide fear. And Augustine says that fear is marked by a desire and a recognition that if the Bible is sourced and located in the very being of God himself, then when I come to it, I yearn and desire to know what it is that he wants and how he reveals his own person. I yearn for that. I'm marked by the fear of that because I want to know who God is because I know that if I'm left to myself, I'll start casting my own ideas of God's godness onto him. But I don't want to cast my ideas. I want to be shaped by his thoughts, thinking God's thoughts after after God. It's fear. But there's a second part in the stage of knowledge. From fear, then you move to piety. Now, don't let that word scare you, okay? Some of you hear the word piety and you think kind of swarmy, um, uh, ending all your phrases with praise the Lord, um, you know, a, a, a kind of, uh, um, well, I don't know, I, I shouldn't, I, I grew up in a world like that and, I, and, I'm, and I'm still recovering, okay? Um, but when, when, um, when Augustine talks about piety, this is how he defines piety. Piety is the natural offshoot of fear. Why? Because fear wishes to know what God's will is. Piety submits to it and seeks to order one's life in light of what that revelation is. It seeks not to contradict the Bible, but it seeks to understand the Bible and to submit one's person, one's will to the Scriptures. Think about Mark Twain's famous line, right? It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. Um, All right. Off the record. (laughs) There, There are parts of the Bible, as we've already said this morning, that are difficult and a challenge. And in fact... Coming with a certain kind of intellectual apparatus or a certain kind of critical mindset, there are parts of the Bible that can be viewed and placed over against other parts of the Bible 
to use Anglican language, parts of the Bible can be found to be repugnant with other parts of the Bible. Um, if one comes looking for it. Right? Um, if you're hardwired in such a way that I'm already in a position that I want to... you got to remember, Augustine is brilliant. Um, Luther is bona fide brilliant. Jonathan Edwards, without doubt, probably the greatest philosophical mind America has ever known. He was brilliant, right? But all those incredibly intelligent men and women from the church who have, who have recognized and used their intellectual gifts for him, they come to the scriptures in humility, seeking to order their mind and to order the scriptures in light of that particular predisposition. Why do I say that? Because if you go hunting for it to disprove it, you can find it. You can find it. But if you go looking to order it and to understand it, in light of the fact that God has given it to us even in its difficulty, then the conclusions are different. Can I give you an example of that? Um, You read the prophets, right? I mean, you can go to the prophets and you can just, you uh, you can get whiplash moving from one section to another. I grew up in a world, like many of you grew up in, conservative Christianity, right? You all are liberals compared to the way I I grew up, okay? But that's the world I grew up in. I, I just never thought through all of my reading of the Bible, to go, you know, Micah seems to be um, in competition with Isaiah. Or, you see what's said here in Deuteronomy? That's completely at odds with what's going on here in Numbers. Right? And I, I just, I would have, even though I saw those things, my instinct would have been, this is God's word. That shapes my approach to knowledge on this. And because it's God's word, now I'm going to have to think about how I'm going to associate these difficult texts with each other and not make them repugnant the one to the other. Does that make sense? You can find it. You can find it. But I think Augustine is saying the the reader marked by fear and piety is the one that goes to, to and seeks to order the mind and to order the prayers according to this word and not to make it contradictory to itself. That's the fearful mind. And then what does it yield? Here's the third stage, and then, and then we'll be done. The third stage is love. See, fear, piety. I want to do what you say there. I don't have it within my own will to do it, but I, I'm asking God, I'm prayerful, and, and Gustin's central on this, I'm prayerful that God would let me get into his word and that it would shape me in who I am and how I think and how I pray, which then yields, and this is classic with Augustine, which then yields love of God for God's sake and love of neighbor for God's sake. And this is what Augustine would say. Well, this is a good challenge to me, right? Because, I, again, I pay the bills by doing Bible stuff. I, I, this is my profession. And so this is a personal challenge. This is what Augustine would say. If all, of the, if all the Bible studies you're going to, and we're kind of a Bible study church, all the efforts that you're putting into it don't yield love of God and love of neighbor, then, then the train's gone off the track. That's what it is. In other words, there are a lot of people out there that get intellectually stimulated by lots of things. You know, the mating patterns of, you know, 
I don't know, Galapagos turtles. I mean, that's fascinating. You know, let's read about that. I mean, pe- people get intellectually curious about all kinds of things. And theology and religion is, a, is an area that people can get intellectually fascinated about. And it can become all the kind of talk of, sh- of coffee, coffee shop banter. Right? Sure. Right? But Augustine's saying, have at it. But the knowledge of the Bible and a Christian approach to reading it has as its result love of God and love of neighbor. That's it. In other words, there is a usefulness to this. But this isn't just Augustine. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher of the 19th century, before his classic book called Sickness and the Death, he says, for Christian writing to be Christian, it must be useful. You know, it can't just remain in the abstract. It's got to, be, it's got to move into the concrete, right? Love of God and, and love of neighbor. Well, I had other things I wanted to say. Let me stop there. Anybody want to ask a question or two before we go? Yes, sir. What for him was his canon? Because he was early enough that it might have been different. Yeah, and he talks about that in here. It's a funny thing, you know, St. Augustine didn't know Greek or Hebrew. Neither one. (laughs) Um, I remind my students of that who struggle that he's in the dome and they never will be. Um, you know, so take some courage in that. Um, Augustine and Jerome had a pretty massive debate in the early 4th century regarding the scope of the canon. Augustine in here makes an argument for the Septuagint, which would include books that our English Bibles do not. Jerome would have made an argument sort of against that for the priority of the Hebrew canon. So Augustine, you know, if you think about sort of Protestant Roman Catholic debates today on the scope of the canon, what books are in and what books are out, you know, Augustine would be on the side of the Roman Catholic tradition and Jerome would be on the side of the Protestant tradition and you can guess which, who I think is right on that. Does that vitiate No, it does not. And that's a great question that you asked. Does it, in other words, the question about what books are in or out, I think relates substantially to the question about the difficult parts of the Bible as well. Um, I don't know if you've realized this, but there's not... Re- really an official list of what books are canonical. You have to piece that together until, you ready for this? Until the 39 articles of religion. <laughs> Our confession of faith, right? That's when you have the books actually delineated. And yet, so we're talking about here, what, the 16th century. And yet, yeah, that's right. And yet, the, the, the church operated for 1,600 years with the Bible fully operative and authoritative, despite the fact that there might have been some fuzziness on the edges about which books were in or out. I think, I, I think that's actually a very important and helpful tool in our modern discussions about so many things. Yes, we'll have to admit, there are places that are intellectual challenges, and there are some things that we don't know and that people will disagree on. But don't let that obscure what we have here within the center, I think. So, for example, Jerome and Augustine, when it comes to arguing theology, would do so in a very similar way, even though they disagree on which books are in or out. But uh, uh, this is a question that's based on a study that I did as a student at Harvard and a book that I read, and it had to do with the... Uh, it's sort of like a conversion, and that is to say at the point at which the now Roman Catholic Church became somewhat bureaucratic, and that tended to have the effect of moving the Bible into this kind of a stuck-in-the-mud situation. 
Now, one of the things that I remember in relation to that, too, is that I recall that the Bible was really a challenge in terms of the men who put it together, the parts they left out, the parts they put in, and how they, how in the world did they get all that together without having this complicated, sort of difficult situation result. And then the next thing that I remember about that, and this is from a reading from a National Geographic magazine of all things a couple of years ago, about the creation of the King James Version of the Bible, which was the ultimate translation into English from the Bible. And how many people it took how long to get themselves together to get that done in a way that they thought was correct. My question is, how in the world can that happen? <laughs> right. At, at all. I mean, you can go through these further translations and then I worry about those as a result of knowing these things. Yeah, yeah. The King James, and there's a great book on this by a fellow named Norton. Cambridge Press, I think, published it on the history of the King James translation. It is an enormous achievement of Western civilization. I mean, without a doubt. Um, done by committee. The last translation, think about this from, from the standpoint of say even Christianity or Judaism, the last translation done quite like that was the Septuagint in the second century BC, um, which was done by sort of a group of 70, and then there's a lot of, lot of tradition linked to this. So what they, what they achieved with the King James Version is remarkable, and all English translations today are shaped by it. All of them are shaped by it today. It makes me unable to give up with the King James Version. I can't. And I, and I certainly can appreciate it. It's kind of funny. As I've gotten older, if you ask Timothy George, the dean at the Divinity School, you know, tell me your favorite translation, he's going to tell you the King James Version. Um, it's good. Part, part of the challenge with the King James Version is parts of it, is, parts of it are better than the Bible itself. And it's so, you know, it's so beautiful. I mean, the bi- biblical Hebrew can be kind of rough and staccato. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I mean, it's just, you mess with that, and you're messing with you know, something sacred. Um, let me just say, if, we, if I were to read that out in its sort of original Hebrew um, poetic form, it wouldn't, quite, it wouldn't be quite as lyrical. Yeah. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you. Um, it's a lot of spaghetti on the wall this morning, Lord, and I, I pray that in your mercy you would let um, what is important and necessary stick. And, um, Lord, you've left us your word, and you've left us certain challenges with that, which, for Augustine, it's part of your providence. It's there to keep us humble before you and in dependence of you. We, can't, we don't master your word. But um, Augustine's teaching us that we need to be mastered by it. And that's the kind of reader that the Bible anticipates. Help us, Lord, by your grace to be a church that's marked by members who yearn to be mastered by Scripture, to so shape them to love God and to love neighbor. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.